HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, we at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the way that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org slash COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to firsthand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how the crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep food radio alive. HRN needs your support more than ever to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Sylvie Charles, the founder and CEO of Just Date Syrup, a line of delicious plant-based low glycemic sweeteners made with 100% organic California dates. Sylvie grew up wanting to be a doctor and was living her dream when a debilitating spine injury forced her to take a challenging medical leave of absence. It was then that she started to explore her lifelong passion for food and healing. Five years later, Just Date Syrup is wildly popular and now in over 1,700 doors, including all Whole Foods markets, and has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Forbes, among many others. Sylvie, I'm so happy you're here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, Love the podcast. I'm so happy you reached out. Thank you. Well, I have to say... Yesterday, I made banana bread with Just Date. The other night, I made this chicken where I basically braised um, a chicken and eights and like the um, 
date syrup with some apple cider vinegar, a little bit of broth. Um, trying to think if I think that's it. It was amazing. Like I've been using it a lot. Yeah. No, I've been using it a lot and I've been like playing around with it um, and just having a really fun time. So I don't know how those samples came to me or if I bought it or if Maddie gave it to me (laughs) or what, but like it's there and it's now an active part of my pantry. Um, Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. And Um, also just anyone who knows you says that you're just like a really wonderful person. So it's really nice to talk to you and, um, you know, meet you over you know, Zencaster or whatever it is. Yes, if, I know. We were planning to do this in person, right? And COVID yeah. got in our way. <laughs> yes. Um, so tell me, I guess, a little bit, like, before we get into the nitty gritty, kind of where you are and how you're doing and, you know, just a general check-in on Yeah, you. absolutely. Well, <laughs> thanks for checking in. Um, I know this has been a really difficult time for everyone um, in different ways, <laughs> um, whether you're alone at home or, you know, in my case, you know, not with a nanny (laughs) has been the most challenging part, Um, you know, working from home with a toddler, um, which has not been an easy task. (laughs) Um, So, you know, it's been a lot of reliance on um, the team to kind of continue to get things done, a lot of late nights working, um, and also trying to balance it with just feeling really um, happy and privileged to at least, you know, make the most of this and get this time with my daughter Um, that I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And she's at a really special age. So um, I'm trying very hard not to get too stressed out about not being able to work as much as I want to. um, And instead, just enjoy this really um, lovely time with my girl. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of, you know, I just have so many different feelings going on at the same Mm -hmm. time. You know, I'm, I'm clearly, you know, I'm in the middle of Manhattan. And walking around is very sad to me. It's just my city is very special to me and it's just sad, you know, Mm -hmm. um, people being sick, sad, you know, there's so much sort of confusion about the future and how we're all going to adapt. And is this a new normal? And what if this happens every few years now? You know, there's so many of those things. So many questions. Yeah. And then there is, you know, there's the other stuff, which is things, you know, are a little slower in a lot of ways. And I am with my kids more and I'm getting to cook more, which I really, really love. It's why I got yeah, into this in the same. first place. <laughs> and, you know, yesterday I had a pretty bad day and I just, you know, like everyone else, you know, I made banana bread and I roasted these tomatoes that were kind of going to be going out soon and, you know, I just kind of like cleared out everything and and made what I could. And I realized that like by the end of that sort of hour in the kitchen, I felt really good. Um, totally. And so I just, I'm like trying to just be okay with having all of it. Um, but back to Just Eat. Um, yeah, so, no, yeah. I feel you. <laughs> I feel um, you so 100%. And yeah. I, um, yeah, I I think I've experienced the same thing where suddenly I, I have more time to cook. <laughs> and right. uh, I hadn't been doing that for many, many months, right. um, you know, living in San Francisco and relying on so much great, um, you know, fast, casual yeah. food that I could yeah. pick up, um, even though I love cooking. And that's why I got into this as well. Right. Um, but, you know, yeah, I'm I I really feel you on just trying to take it all and experience it all and experience all the emotions that come with it. And um, I've had a similar experience in San Francisco, um, just 
I think one of the things that's worried me is just this change in socialization and how we view other people. Um, Mm -hmm. So walking down the street in San Francisco and, um, you know, stepping away from people you you used to say hi to and kind of looking other directions and not even being that friendly towards each other. Um, It's very weird to raise a toddler in that environment when she's supposed to be actively um, learning how to socialize. Yeah. No, that's such a good point. I thought that, you know, I, we had this scheduled obviously for many months, but I actually, when I was kind of taking notes and looking through things, I actually think you're sort of the perfect guest for this time because, you know, I think your story, and normally we'd spend a lot of time kind of going through your story, but I kind of summarized it a little bit at the, you know, at the beginning in the intro. And obviously I want to hear more about it from you, but I think that your story is a lot like a lot of entrepreneurs stories in the sense that there's a plan. And, you know, I always think like, I was like a bird in a nest and then like somewhere out of the blue, either like a wind came or someone with a shotgun just kind of (laughs) blew me out of my nest. And I, and I think a lot of us end up finding our passions and our dreams when things don't go according to plan. Um, But that doesn't mean that it's not terrifying. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we don't have a lot of emotion around it. Um, but I think that your story is a really fitting one because I, my guess is that right now, a lot of us are, you know, we hadn't planned on a global pandemic (laughs) and, um, you know, I don't know, there's something that kind of, there's like, you know, the, the light where the crack is, right. I think that you, your story is one where something beautiful came out of something really hard. And I think it's going to be inspiring to people to listen to because this is something really hard. Even if our sales, you know, some of us, our sales have never been better. um, We know that that's, there's still, we know that's not lasting. We know that it's a temporary blip. We know that things are going to get challenging when there's a recession. You know, even those of us who are doing really well, I think are reforecasting for the year because resets will take longer and, Maybe the the stores that you're in, the baskets are going up, but you're just not going to have as many stores as you thought, you know, starting with sort of Expo West going away. And um, so I guess, you know, a little bit of background on you would be great to start. You know, where did you grow up? And I know that you definitely always wanted to be a doctor and, you know, <laughs> basically kind of tell me a little bit about your early sure. life. Um, so yeah, I grew up in um, I grew up in an Indian family um, where my father was a doctor, so there weren't mm-hmm. a lot of options presented to me. <laughs> <laughs> so your lifelong dream maybe was your parents' lifelong dream. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, you know, my dad was a, a really good, well-respected doctor in our small town in Florida, um, an oncologist, and really, really cared about what he did. Um, and I saw that passion and drive. Um, growing up. And, you know, he was also an entrepreneur, though. And uh, he, mm-hmm. he came from really nothing from poverty in India, um, moved to America and um, really lived that American dream and worked really hard to, to get where he got. Um, yeah, and, you know, I was really inspired by that. And I didn't really think about a lot of other 
a lot of other career paths at the beginning. Um, and I always had interest in the arts and I actually ended up uh, majoring in architecture once I went to college. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was always this push and pull between, am I going to follow this creative side that I, I know is within me, this artistic side, or am I right. going to kind of fulfill my supposed destiny <laughs> and become um, become a doctor? And, you know, I, I ended up always trying to do both, um, right. which ended in a lot of kind of mental struggle about like what I was really supposed to be doing. Right. Um, but I never How felt... Yeah, sorry to interrupt you, sure. but tell me yeah. about food. Like when you were growing up, you know, how did your family eat? Was, like, oh, was yeah. it, well, you know, because I've heard different things from different people, who, you know, whose parents immigrated basically. Mm-hmm. Where Well, so, I have a smile on my face thinking yeah. about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it really you know, I grew up in a big extended family household. So my aunt was there, my grandma was there, my mom mm. was there, um, my two cousins, uh, my dad. So really big extended family all living mm. under one roof. Um, and there was a lot of cooking going on yeah. at all times. Primarily um, Indian cooking? Primarily Indian cooking, yeah. Right. Um, you know, whenever we wanted American food, we had kind of the classic, uh, you know, 80s, 90s. Right. <laughs> uh, Bucket American of KFC. Right. Like, some KFC. KFC was right. definitely always around. Some yeah. Stouffer's lasagna, some hamburger helper, some right. Jimmy Dean. <laughs> right. All of those uh, classic American um, frozen foods. And were you the um, kid who was like, Mom you know, can't we just have hamburger helper? Like, or were <laughs> no, you I loved, like, I, love I loved food. Indian yeah. food. Yeah. I really loved Indian food. My cousins didn't so much. Um, mm-hmm. but my, my mom was a fantastic cook and she still is. And, um, she taught me everything. I really grew up, uh, really grew up watching her, you know, sauteing onions and garlic to yep. get everything started and you know yeah. making 700 samosas for a party in like right. <laughs> <an hour>. yeah <laughs> um you know I that need to um you know put food on the table and make everyone really happy with your cooking um mm-hmm. really became a part of me um of course I didn't see anything in it as a career until right. much later um and, you know, suddenly it was later in life that I realized how much my mom had influenced me more than, you know, my dad's career. So, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, that ended up becoming a much more important thing. So you graduated with an architecture degree, but then you went to medical school. I did. I graduated with architecture and chemistry degrees. And um, I, you know, took a year to do research and ended up finding this niche in medicine that really fit my personality. And um, that was a little bit more artistic, a little bit more new. Um, and that was within integrative medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. So really thinking about uh, healing from a broader perspective and really combining the best of both worlds from yeah. Western medicine and Eastern medicine. And that, that, that was really new um, at the yeah. time in the early 2000s. So um, that, that was a very interesting field for, for, from my perspective to go into, um, because there was so much newness there. There was like some creativity to be done of like, how do you, how do you broach Western medicine and bring in these new concepts? Um, how do you work with Eastern medicine doctors showing them the value of Western medicine? Um, so that was a really interesting place for me to navigate and something I ended up feeling really passionate about. 
brought in the food piece too. Cause there's mm-hmm. so, I mean, in, you know, I mean, in Eastern medicine, you know, regardless of it's, you know, Ayurveda or, you know, Chinese medicine or any, anything really other than sort of like surgery driven Westernized medicine, so much of it is about what you're eating, you know? Absolutely. um, Absolutely. And so I think it was a a lot less about kind of the woo-woo, you know, (laughs) drink this like herbal tonic and like change your life sort of thing. It was really just about those basics of the food that we eat. And, um, you know, the word Ayurveda wasn't ever really used in my house, but it was so much a part of what we ate. And um, it was just embedded there in the way Indian food is. So, um, you know, looking back now um, through reading about Ayurveda and studying it and bringing that back to how I grew up. Um, it was all, it was all in there and yeah. <laughs> impacting yeah, me um, from the start. And then, yeah. um, so tell me about sort of like the turning point or like the breaking point or, you know, yeah. when things change. Um, so med school, I, so actually my injury started in medical school and I struggled with it. Um, all throughout medical school, I I was actually traveling in China and um, and was uh, creating a documentary about Eastern and Western medicine um, and mm-hmm. how they combine. So I was interviewing a lot of healers. I was, um, you know, trying to examine this relationship um, through film. And uh, you know, I was backpacking, and I suddenly woke up one morning and couldn't walk. Mm. Um, And so I was in Beijing and, you know, woke up, uh, I was traveling with a friend. Um, so I woke up and, you know, couldn't, couldn't get up, couldn't move, um, ended up having to be airlifted out of, um, Beijing and, um, got home to America within the course of a couple weeks. Um, did, was, when you were there, did people kind of have an idea of what was going on or, so it was clear that like one of my discs had herniated. Um, but you know, I was very averse to getting any form of surgery or any intervention in China without my family. Um, and so we did, you know, everything we could to uh, try and get me home to America. Um, and I was young then I was, you know, 23 and, you know, I was very active and had lived, um, had been living a life that was very focused on yoga and healing and moving. And, you know, I was a dancer growing up, like movement was so incredibly important to me and the way I viewed healing. Um, that it was a very jarring experience. Um, and it was, it was the summer after my first year of medical school. Um, and I went back to LA where, where I was in med school at USC and, you know, it was a, it was a very challenging couple of years. (laughs) And luckily the second year of medical school was so much schoolwork still. So I could kind of do that from home. Um, and so, and took my time to recover. And a lot of the pieces there were acupuncture and discovering different things. And I, I just think sort of similar to, you know, what we're all going through in this pandemic, it was a lot of figuring things out, yeah. you know, yeah. it was just trying to make it work, um, very confused, um, a very a kind of a 180 in my life of, of the things I used to do and well, wondering also like what like- the next steps were. Yeah. It it also sounds like, you know, one of the things I've noticed is like my old tricks aren't working. 
mm-hmm. the things that I've leaned on to relax me or calm me or, or, you know, none of them are working. I'm figuring out whole new things right now that like, and it's weird to me. Like I used to, you know, before this, I would take a bath every night. It was like my way of just stopping the day and starting the wind down. And mm-hmm. I haven't had, I, my, I've been like, I don't know, like there's no inclination in me to get into a tub. Like, it's just weird to me. Like, you know, even the yoga stuff, like I haven't mm-hmm. been able to find, it's just, I'm finding like a lot of people I'm talking to are sort of saying, you know, and it goes back to sort of, I mean, a little bit of a woo-woo sort of Buddhist idea, which is, you know, we're all sort of searching for ground to stand on and there just isn't any. And sure. we're kind of used to to tricking ourselves into thinking there is by these things that we do. Um but there's just a reality that there isn't. And it's kind of once you accept that, that then you're able to kind of move on and just, and, you know, start being creative again. But it sounds like, you know, your, your way of getting ground under your feet for your whole life was one thing. And the very time you kind of needed that, when you were faced with this challenge, you couldn't do the things that had given you that ground. Yeah, absolutely. And and it was sad because it was, it was sad because it was the things I I really believed in for healing, you know, like yoga, for example. Um, And what had happened is that my spine surgeon told me he was seeing a lot of young 20 something yogis come in with massive spine injuries. Um, And so that was just a real turnaround of (laughs) the way I saw, um, you know, I, I had trained to be a yoga teacher. I had fully thought I would be integrating yoga into my medical practice um, in a very intimate way. And suddenly my world was turned upside down. And, um, you know, and I think something to what you were saying is that I think it's okay right now to be putting little band-aids, you know, everywhere on, on, um, on what we're experiencing, even if they're not long-term solutions, just trying to get through this because it's, it's new and there's nothing we do right now that's going to um, that's going to really stick and right. and really making us feel better for the long term. But I think everything we can do to survive right now is what we need to be doing. <laughs> um, so, so you know, for about, me, I was I was yeah. never a coffee drinker before. Right <laughs> um, now, I don't think I would survive. <laughs> right, and if would, I wasn't yeah. a little reliant okay. on coffee right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay, so tell me about launching because you launched a company called Spice Mama before yeah. you launched Just Date. So right. tell me what happened there. Yeah, um, so you know, I finished, I managed to finish medical school with this injury, um, kind of on and off taking breaks. Um, you know, I ate into a lot of my, you know, med school vacation time, kind of taking recovery breaks and things like that. And um, my medical school is really understanding about all of that. Um, you know, after I graduated, I went to residency at UCSF. Um, and it was late in residency that um, my injury really started to flare again. Um, I had been struggling with it for many years, but it really started to become unbearable. Um, you know, I was laying down in call rooms between patients, um, really just having a very hard time at UCSF. And we were working, you know, 80, 90 hour weeks. So it was 
there really wasn't any time to rest and um, to really focus on recovery. Um, started going down to kind of half time again. You know, my my residency program being really understanding. Yeah, and that wasn't working either. And it became clear that this wasn't going to go away if I didn't a hundred percent focus my attention on it. Um, and I think that's that's a lesson like a lesson that I try to share with so many people who are going through um, massive injuries or anything traumatic um, is that they need your focus and attention. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, was, was in a place where I was lucky to have been able to do that. Um, and I, you know, I had so little time left in residency. So right. it seemed just completely crazy to um, be taking, well, at first I was only taking a medical leave of absence, but, right. and I went back for a little while and then I took another medical leave of absence. And it was after that yeah. second one that I decided to leave. Um, yeah. And that was a really, you know, I think I felt pretty sure in the decision, but it was one of those situations where your family and your friends oh, and all yeah. the people around you are thinking, what is happening? This is, this is a train wreck going. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> also, know? even if you know intuitively that it's a good decision, it's still your identity. Mm-hmm. You know, you're so, you're, who are you if you're not that to some extent, right. since that's what you've been doing for so long. And, you know, it's just a part of you and I mean, I'm sure also like it sounds like you're a pretty, um, I don't know, active person. So there must have been a feeling of like you you gave into it in a way, even though, you know, again, rationally, you knew that you were listening to it to heal. It feels like it, it kind of got you, um, you know, which I'm sure was hard on so many levels, even if you did know that it was ultimately the good decision. Did you know at that point that you wanted to do something in food or you just knew that you couldn't do that anymore? I just knew that I could not be in medicine anymore. Um, And I think a lot of it came from I couldn't take care of other people when I was having so much trouble caring for myself. Yeah. Um, And it was only it was one of those situations where you just only have so much to give and um, you can't give anything to anybody if um, if you're if you're not in a place to. Yeah. And I felt that it was really unfair to my patients as well um, because they didn't have my full attention. Um, yeah. And maybe in the state of the current medical system and the shortage, it's better for them to have partial attention <laughs> than no attention. Yeah. But, but at the time, it really felt like, you yeah. know, nobody's winning in this situation. Yeah. Um, you know, I can't give my all to my patients. I'm miserable. (laughs) And so I really need to take a break. Um, And it was after that second leave of absence that, you know, I called my program and told them that I was not coming back, which was a very hard decision. And, and one that I didn't really run by anyone in my family, including my now husband and my parents. Um, But it was, it was just something I knew they were going to have to come to terms with. And, and I had a lot of confidence in myself that if I took this break, if I gave the right amount of attention to myself for the first time in many years, um, then something good would come out on the other side and I would figure out what to do. Yeah. Um, and I had a lot of ideas, a lot of you know entrepreneurial ideas about different directions that didn't include food. Um right. 
but one of <laughs> there is uh, there is uh, something called mango achar, which you've probably had mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. at some point, and my love, my lifetime love for that really came forward right. <laughs> during this time off. And, you know, I started to think about what I wanted to do. And I thought, you know, the world deserves some mango achar. Right. <laughs> and they deserve it like a little bit healthier than, than yeah. it's been. And, um, you know, what if I could take all of these classic Indian sauces and condiments and, mm-hmm. you know, make them refined sugar free and make them low salt and make them still taste as great and really gear them towards um, my Indian community, um, which is usually very afflicted with diabetes and heart disease, my own family included, um, and take my medical background and infuse some of that into this food. Um, So that was my first foray into food was this first company, Spice Mama. Um, And were you ever selling it? I mean, did you get where you were on the shelves and you were making it and... Yes, just in San Francisco. Um, so, you know, we I had like a handful of stores in San Francisco, was starting to grow that side of the business, grow that um, first business. Right. And I was playing around with dates for my tamarind chutney. And I really wanted to make tamarind date ch- chutney a pourable and completely refined sugar-free product. And so I thought maybe I can turn these dates into a date syrup. They must have so much natural sugar as is. And it worked. And I tasted it and kind of had this light bulb moment that that was the thing. Um, that like, this was the thing I should be selling. And, right. And um, so did you just go back to those same stores where you were and be like, actually, wait, no chutney. Yes. <laughs> Here's the date syrup. And what was Yeah, you know, I tried to do, I tried to do all four um, at the right. end, like all three sauces and the date and syrup. The date, yeah. Yeah. But the date syrup was shelf stable. And um, <laughs> as I'm sure, you know, yep, <laughs> like, I know difficult <laughs> refrigerated products. Are. <laughs> um, so I, I decided to make the switch and it was this experience where, you know, really great grocery stores like Byright in San Francisco, um, had refused my chutneys, which was very sad for me. Yes, um, but when I went back with the date syrup, they were immediately on board, immediately got it. Um, and it was one of those things where, you know, the flavor of the date syrup, like, was first. That was the first thing that was created. And then I like sent everything in for testing and did some lab work with some of my former colleagues at UCSF and realized like that it was much more nutritious, like very impactfully so compared to refined sugar and a lot of the alternative sweeteners that were out there. Um, And so that was, that was kind of that, that light bulb moment when Byright took it and Good Eggs took it and um, some other kind of great grocery stores in San Francisco that I decided to focus on it full time. So that would be my next question. When the moment was that you really knew you had a business and it was probably that moment. Yeah. I, you know, I took it to Rainbow Grocery and, um, you know, had gotten a meeting with the buyer and she I had a little spoon and, you know, she tried it in an aisle, like, right. you know, just standing in the aisle at Rainbow Grocery. And she said, do you have any with you? And I was like, yeah, I have two cases in my car. And she was like, great, let's cut it in right now. Wow. So that <laughs> um, was the moment you really knew you had a business. <laughs> absolutely. And, and it was that moment. And then she called the next week and said, everything you brought me sold out. Oh, so that's, that's, <laughs> so that that's, was really- You ring the bell. 
I think I've said this so many times on this podcast, but great advice. Like you don't ring the bell when you sell it in your first case, you ring the bell when you get a reorder. Absolutely, okay. We're going to take a little break and then we're going to sure. come back and talk about everything from like making it to selling it to marketing it. Um, and we'll be right back. The James Beard Foundation is a nonprofit with the mission to celebrate, nurture, and honor chefs and other leaders, making America's food culture more delicious, diverse, and sustainable for everyone. And right now, it's working to respond to the dire situation the food and beverage community is in due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Restaurants, bars, and other independent food and beverage operations are often on the front lines of community revival. The majority of culinary community businesses have less than 500 employees, but collectively this industry generates $1 trillion a year, 60% of which is pumped back into their local business communities. To help bring swift economic relief to these essential businesses, the James Beard Foundation launched a fund to provide microgrants to independent food and beverage businesses in need. You can donate at jamesbeard.org relief. I'm back with Sylvie Charles from Just Date Syrup. Okay, so now it's 2016, 20, around what? Um, yeah, so I launched Spice Mama in 2016 and launched Date Syrup in 2017. Great. And so I, it's actually three years later. I said five. Um, that's quick. So now you are you're getting interest from buyers. And mm-hmm. I like this a lot because I feel like a lot of people I meet you know, the product that ends up being the winner, winner, the product that ends up having the big exit isn't usually the first iteration. It's not even sometimes the first product. I know people, even like we had the Yerba Mate guy on, guy, the, you know, the founder, David, on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said like <laughs> they had a loose tea that was like their product. And then basically it was, you know, it they needed something for the cold weather and you know, they made a tea in a bottle and that's the, you know, that's the thing that's like 300 million in sales or something. So I feel like, you know, it's really good advice in the sense that, you know, sometimes your first idea isn't always the one that hits. Um, But how do you generally communicate with buyers about your product? Is it in like the sugar baking section? Like where does it live? And in general, how do you kind of talk about it with buyers? And and tell me about sort of, because now you're global with Whole Foods um, and, you know, any advice you have around introducing something kind of new into the market with relationships with buyers? Well, it's like you said, I think that flexibility was really key at the beginning. Um, So, you know, being able to, even though I was so emotionally attached to these Indian sauces, um, being able to let them go (laughs) and um, switch to something else, Um, you know, being really flexible there and also really trying to learn lessons from Spice Mama and what went wrong and what went right. Um, So I think, you know, that that first year with Spice Mama gave me a lot of great introduction to working with grocers in a way where you're not losing too much money, like while you're yeah. learning these lessons um, with just a couple of grocery stores and um, 
and a product. I don't remember like any that. in particular that like, I mean, I can point to the things that like we, I'm glad we messed up on a small scale early on with mm-hmm. like at Whole Foods rather than, you know, can you point to anything that you're like, you know? Yeah. Maybe- well, I mean, I think, I think the big thing for me was glass um, for our, for our yeah. bottles. Um, you know, that was one of the big challenges with Spice Mama with online. It was breaking, um, you know, it was very expensive and yeah. um and it also was, it was less usable in a jar. Yes, um, that way. Yeah. I think the squeeze bottle is something our customers really love right now. Yeah. Um, so, you know, thinking a lot, the situation with Spice Mama made me think a lot about the usability of the product and how yeah. to design, how to design a bottle that would be easy to use and really resonate with people. I didn't get it quite right the first time where our <laughs> bottle was like a little too hard. So like really difficult to squeeze. Yeah. <laughs> and so I could do it, but like I must have just had like really strong forearms by yeah. the end of the <laughs> squeezing right. that bottle. Um, so, but before Whole Foods, we ended up switching to a much more squeezable bottle. But um, so that was one of the big lessons learned. And, um, you know, I just think that initial experience of working with buyers, understanding the importance of, you know, the reorder and getting customers to love and accept the product. Um, well, let's was, talk a little really bit about that, well. too, because, you know, we um, how how did you start getting customers? Because, you know, I, I break it down a lot. You know, there's your customer to me, that is the buyer at the store who actually buys it. And then, you know, there's your consumer, um, all the people that are buying it from those customers and, and pulling it off the shelf so that those, you know, they buy more, but how did you do a lot of demos at the beginning? Did you, yeah, absolutely. you know, it was, it was before of- I had a baby. So there, um, I was really, you know, this was my baby and, um, judge date syrup was my baby. And I was really just working overtime on demos, um, just in all of the stores, um, as much as I could be in Northern California in the Pacific Northwest in Southern California, um, just driving all up and down the West coast. Um, doing as many demos as I could by itself because part of the I think the value proposition for it is like you can use it in baking and you can use it in cooking instead of sugar Um, yeah absolutely I mean I think I don't know if you've had a similar experience but I mean your sauces are just so amazing on their own that you don't necessarily need to serve it on something mm-hmm. um but I was always making things way more elaborate <laughs> should have yeah. you know I yeah. was making like fresh refined sugar-free waffles at demos right. and no, you know bringing a griddle yeah. and doing pancakes and like all of yeah, because things. that's you know people it's funny like we have a sauce in a pouch and the number one question is like what do I do with it right and I'm like well it's sauce and you squeeze it you know I mean in right. a way like, what you know but but it's funny, like people really need to be shown. So Absolutely. yeah, we I mean one of our problems is, you know, they're great cooking sauces and you know, demo cooking demos are really expensive. It's really yeah, hard to do. So, you know, what even presenting them to buyers, you know, I make potatoes with them or I make chicken skewers with them or I make little meatballs, you know, in, in the buyer meetings. Um Yeah, absolutely. But it's just 
I think, you know, it's hard. Did you do a lot of sort of recipes? Like, how did you, because I thought, I, I remember like Raquel from Fourth and Heart, like she was all about educating consumers on how to use ghee. Mm-hmm. Like, she had. Yeah, I mean, of, I think. Yeah. It definitely. I mean, I, that, that first year I really was doing like very complicated demos, both in like savory and sweet, um, because right. I really wanted people to understand like how to use it in cooking. Um, and I, but really like the main use of date syrup that I'm, you know, was thinking about was its use in beverages. Um, mm-hmm. so in place of, in place of re- refined sugar, which, you know, obviously sugar in beverages is one of the leading causes of type two diabetes. So, right. um, that was really what I felt passionate about. So now we're moving more in our demos towards like lattes and iced drinks and things like that um, as a little bit easier of a way for us to demo. Um, But yeah, first year, you know, I was by myself. It was just me. Um, I was just traveling all over the country demoing. (laughs) Um, You know, I just really wanted to figure out ways to get it into, into people's mouths. And, you know, I think one of the funny things about demos is yes like if you have a great product like much of the time you're going to get like a great positive response but then you get those few negative responses oh my really gosh happen. people look at me like I hate rats, <laughs> and I'm like I'm sorry you know because they're always like the number one thing people at a demo say is like well what's your favorite and I'll be like well I love the nutty lemongrass and they're like no no I don't like lemongrass <laughs> so like, okay well what about you want to do you want to try ginger miso no Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I, the really best one thing. for me was like, oh, it tastes it tastes just like molasses, and I was like, I'm gonna put some blackstrap molasses on a spoon for you. Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know. It's you really gotta have like a like a tough skin to do the demos. Like, I, <laughs> and people like look at you like you are very intrusive, you know. And I don't like to be like, hey, there, guy, you want to try some sauce? You know, I try to be at least like additive like oh let me help you make dinner you know I can help you oh I like that um no and but, I really I want, always want to tell people like it's, this is my company I'm not just like, right. no, exactly <laughs> not just a representative um and and back to my recovery a little bit I think yeah. this whole first year of like 2017 to 2018 of um just date syrup it was really empowering for me um yeah. getting back into my body it was one of those situations where you know, at first making date syrup in the kitchen, I, I would have to make much, much smaller batches than I wanted to, um, simply because I couldn't carry the pot. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I was going to say, you, you didn't go into something. I mean, I know how physical of a, of a business it is like you're Mm -hmm. loving stuff and especially like you're setting up the tables and you're doing the thing and you're, Super it's not physical. like not physical. It's not no, just and for making the product. I mean, now, now we use a co-packer, but that whole first year, like making the product, um, all of that, like really just it taking exponentially longer than it should have because I couldn't move stuff easily. Um, well, tell and- me a little bit about that. I want to hear a little bit about how you kind of went from, you know, being in the aisle that day with, you know, syrup that you made to like what the team looks like, how you built it out, how you built out your supply chain, you know, sure. did you sort of well, do like incubator there's, there's only three of us. Um, so it's still a very, very small team. Um, you know, at the beginning, the the first steps in growing just date syrup were all about the manufacturing of it. Um, right. So bringing in, um, bringing in people to, 
you know, help me on a, a part-time, then moving towards full-time basis where they were just helping me in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved my production team, my production staff. That was, well, those were really fun days working, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> working like 24 hours in the kitchen. And, um, and again, just very empowering for me. You know, I, there were so many things about that year um, that, really contributed to the strength I feel today. Um, you know, I started out moving like one to five pound boxes of dates and things like that to then being able to lift 20 pounds of dates to then being able to lift 60 pounds of dates. And, um, and that progression was incredibly powerful to me. And just a reminder that you can take things in small steps and it gets you to where you're wanting to go um that you just have to be patient and kind with yourself so yes I had to walk back and forth probably a hundred times from the pallet area to the kitchen area moving like five pounds of boxes of dates at a time um but you know I just really it helped build the stamina and the strength that I feel now yeah Um, it's really a beautiful story you know and I love that you can measure your strength and dates yeah. You know? <laughs> Instead of like 525,000, whatever, like you could be like in dates, you know. Um, like yeah. measure, you know, that's my singing. I don't know that I've ever sung on the podcast before. <laughs> I don't think I'll make a habit of it. Um, but, you know, that's like you're measuring. It's such a night, if you picture it, you know, first it's like you kind of dragging the one pound box and like by sort of the time you've, you know, and it's different. Like you, you did it on your own time and you did it like with this like fierce kind of engine driving you because it was this thing that you created out of nothing. And and that's the thing about entrepreneurship, you know, you're, Absolutely. you're building something from scratch. Absolutely. I think that that end goal, like something, I don't know, it was less about the end goal. Actually, it was more about like the process of doing yeah. it. Um, yeah. And, you know, creating medicine's a hard thing to leave. And, you know, for my parents, at least, like a prestigious career to leave. And um, so I think the process of entrepreneurship just made me feel really good about myself every day. Um, Like at a time when, you know, there was a time when it was really hard to feel good about what was happening Mm -hmm. um, after like leaving a career that I had worked my whole life towards. And so, yeah, you know, I was measuring, <laughs> measuring my progress and process of dates, yeah. um, you know, and it actually worked out really well because when I transitioned to co-packer, actually right. like my full-time production team um, had other job opportunities that right. were, um, that were more like, that felt more stable for them, right. like not at a startup. <laughs> Um, so like one was at UPS and like one was at Facebook, like in the kitchen. So I felt like it all just sort of worked out to where when I was thinking about moving towards a co-packer, they They also were getting opportunities that, um, were going to be really great for them. Yeah. Um, And then figuring out, I mean, how, how, I mean, that's a complicated question, but figuring out how to grow a team and figuring out how to move to a co-packer and figuring out how to build a distribution plan and like all of that did you 
have advice. I mean, it's a lot of, yeah, it's a lot of looking to my community, um, especially in San Francisco. Um, I have like several great advisors in San Francisco. Um, One is Ali Ball, who runs a consulting firm for small businesses that's become a close friend. Um, The other, so I was in an incubator called Kitchen Town in San Francisco as well. Um, So the CEO of that incubator um, also, you know, was a very, has been a very important guide, mentor, advisor um, for the company as well. Um, You know, the first members of the team I built out were um, like an acting VP of sales that Mm -hmm. worked for a few companies. So, you know, was able to take a lot of small steps and that I wasn't ready to hire like a full-time VP of sales, but luckily found this like incredible person who, um, who worked for several companies at once. Um, and until then, you know, I had been doing all of our sales myself and I loved it. And, you know, as I'm sure you can relate, I don't think anyone can sell your product yeah. better than the founder. Um, no, but now I'm sort of, I like the, I get so lost on like the, you know, the margin stuff and the different mm-hmm. promotion things. And the, if Absolutely. you and I have this OI and then that, yeah. <laughs> That's where and I. And then like, you don't discover how much money you've lost. Right, until exactly. Later, <laughs> someone else has to figure this out. I can tell you why this is great. I can tell you why it's going to help people. I can hear your ideas and like help you try to make your customers' life better. Um, but when you get starting into that stuff, my I just uh, I don't know. I mean, I have to kind of learn it because it's the responsible thing to do. But it's, yeah, I mean, so now do you have someone kind of dealing with all that or are you? Yeah, are you... well, um, so I, so that acting VP of sales, um, unfortunately got a full-time sales offer um, right. after about uh, like maybe eight months or a year. Um, I was devastated to lose yeah. <laughs> um, but still not in a place where I could afford like a full-time um right full-time VP of sales. So I just wasn't there yet. Um, and he also remains like a close friend and advisor and, um, you know, guides me a lot. And so I'm actually doing all the sales again right now. Um, we have, um, a business partner that I brought on, um, a little while ago and, uh, she is heading all of like the marketing and strategy right now where I'm doing more of the like sales and operations. And, um, and we have like an analyst as well. Um, right. So it's really just us right now. It's a team of three. And we're doing a lot for a little team. Yeah. So tell um, me a little bit about the business partnership. Like was that mm-hmm. someone who is just also in the industry and you wanted to not do this on your own? Or, you know, how did that? Yeah, you know, I think I think it came, um, it came along at the right time and kind of fell into my lap, to be honest. Um, I was looking for, um, I was just looking for, you know, probably a VP of marketing as the next role to fill. And, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, I was also at a tricky time in my life of having like a young child. Um, my daughter is 18 months old now. And, you know, trying to manage, um, yeah. trying to figure out how to manage a business with limited childcare and, um, yeah, and just trying to balance all of that. <laughs> yeah, and you know, this uh, my business partner. She was thinking she was actually working um, well on her way to starting her own um, kind of plant based ice cream line, mm-hmm. and she had called me for advice um, on you know getting into retail and uh, you know some different ways to market it. And 
we ended up getting along really well. And she is equally passionate about refined sugar. And um, we connected on a lot. And, you know, several months after kind of meeting and talking a lot, we decided to, you know, have a more real conversation about what it would look like to, to merge our, you know, experience and ideas and work on this together. Um, I think it's, it's a, it's a difficult thing, I think, as an entrepreneur and a founder to um, be able to give in to share that with someone um, when you've worked really hard on your own. Um, But my business partner, her name's LaSalle, and she truly feels like the right person to to do it with. I think Um, that's great. And I think you're the first person I've had, you know, a founder kind of hand the reins over a little bit to a CEO. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've had people co-found together. Um, But I haven't had this situation. And I think it's a really good one because I think that people underestimate how lonely it actually is. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Doing this. And I mean, not to say that, I mean, I have great people around me, but at the end of the day, when the final decision, and there are so many all the time, kind of is always yours and you really want to do the right thing there's something really nice about having someone you really trust right there with you. Um, Mm -hmm. I've seen it work incredibly well. I mean, the odds are it works better generally than a single founder. Yeah. You know, I I think it can be confusing in making some of those big decisions for the business when you don't have a true sounding board. Yeah. And I, you know, I have my husband. (laughs) Right. You know, I don't like always take his opinion you know I have yeah. a lot of I feel like I ask him for help and then I automatically reject it but that's what we do that no they're just I, I've explained this to the people in my, they're, they're help they're helping you process right you're not exactly. asking him to tell you what the answer is you're ha- asking him to help you feel what feels right to you and mm-hmm. not solve it but just help you sort of process it that's how okay. I kind of frame it okay Absolutely. tell me what's next because we have a couple minutes left and I feel like you know, you have pomegranate coming up, you have things kind of launching and in the works and you know, what's going on? Yeah, I have a big smile on my face because I'm so excited about what this year. Well, (laughs) I would say my excitement is a little bit modulated right now because I don't know what is in store (laughs) um, with COVID for the rest of the year. Um, But we have some pretty exciting things coming up. you know, our pomegranate molasses is launching in Whole Foods Global uh, in June. Yeah. Um, you know, we've been selling that online already and in like a handful of grocery stores. Um, it's been going really well. So it's the first refined sugar-free pomegranate molasses. Um, you know, most of them out there have tons of cane sugar, tons of preservatives, tons of additives. Um, and I had always loved the product, but was just confused about why, right. <laughs> why yeah. bottles offered all of those additional ingredients that weren't necessary. So we replaced the cane sugar with just a touch of date syrup to um, balance out that bitterness of the pomegranate. And it ends up in this really bright and tart and sweet Mm, um, syrup that can be used. Thank you. That can be used in, you know, marinades and grilling um, cocktails, um, even on ice cream and, Mm -hmm. you know, so, um, you know, kind of taking pomegranate molasses into this idea of like, being used as a sweetener, which I don't think is typical, but um, we're, you know, we're positioning in that way to be used. 
to get kind of those fruity and sweet notes. Right. Amazing. Um, and then we have um, a dry date sugar coming out uh, later this oh, year. Oh, wow, as well. that's great. Cool. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, I've been taking my time with it um, because there are date sugars out there. So I really wanted to make sure that what we were offering was, um, was you know, had an improvement and a benefit over yeah. those. Um, so our date sugar is actually much more white than something you'd find. So um, from a color perspective, um, much closer to white sugar um, right. and actually dissolves quite a bit better as well oh, wow. um, through That's our process. Great. So oh. we're really excited about that. Um, so and then we have, oh, wait, there's more. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then we have a couple <laughs> holiday flavors coming out, which um, I'll leave as a surprise, but um, some fun holiday stuff and, um, and then launching into, to snacks as well next year. Wow. Okay. That's really <laughs> cool. Fun. So lots of, lots of ideas, lots of movement. I mean, you know, 2020 was set to be our best year yet. Um, yeah. January and February were just like incredibly strong and, you know, very exciting. And March has been different. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, yeah. you know, there was that initial spike, um, during that first week of quarantine, but unfortunately yeah. it seems like we're just out of stock everywhere. Yeah. Um, and that it's, buyers are yeah. having a difficult time getting us back on shelf, um, since we're not yeah. like dairy or produce or yeah. any of like the essentials. So, yeah, it's, it's a really weird time for grocery products, but you mm -hmm. sell directly online. Yes. Yep. Yep. And our Amazon's doing really well. So, um, that is, that is keeping us in business and alive right now. Yeah. Um, you know, the initial intention for 2020 was that Amazon and grocery would both grow simultaneously. Right. Um, so I'm just hoping that we, uh, you know, I'm hoping we don't have hiccups in the launch of these new products, but yeah. you know, I have to be prepared for that to happen. Um, you know, we're not relying on the launch of those new products to keep us in business, but yeah. it would be nice. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so. No, and I think it goes to, you know, I mean, one, we talk about channels on this program a lot and sales channels and diversifying your sales channels. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I wish I had a direct or an Amazon right now. I mean, we're, yeah. again, you know, we're lucky that it's, we're lucky that, you know, people are buying it on stores and I'm that the so stores we're in, that. they're definitely we are in stock and we have a lot of great people on the ground to thank for that. And, um, but you know, we're not going to be in a lot of the stores we thought we were going to be this year. And we're assuming that, you know, we were just in a reset this month and, you know, we're not doing any field marketing. So, mm -hmm. you know, we're just assuming those velocities are going to be a lot lower than they might have been had we, launched in, you know, Boston and Birmingham and Cleveland and San Fran and had people, you know, sharing it at their little tables, you know, demoing. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, this year, it's funny. I mean, our whole marketing plan for this year was going to be based on in-person, you yeah. know, field marketing. Um, yeah. We had planned, like, we were about to launch a dinner party series, like, across the country. We were about to do, you know, all of these in-person events, like yeah. that was the idea for 2020. Yeah. Um, so now transitioning all of that to, to virtual digital. has been, yeah. yeah, you know, we're going to do our best to try and make these experience real experiences still very worthwhile in a digital yeah. way, but um, there's nothing like in-person human connection. Yeah. Um, 
So we'll we'll have to continue to evaluate that. And, you know, it's it's not looking like in-person events are going to be happening really anytime in 2020. So, um, you know, it's it's really turning things on its head. But, you know, I'm trying to take those little steps and, and not stress too much about it, but instead kind of try to channel creativity into thinking about ways to tackle this and seeing it as a fun challenge um, instead of as a debilitating one. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have experience doing that. And um, (laughs) I won't sing again, um, but your story kind of makes me want to, because I think Mm -hmm. it's, um, I think, you know, people right now, once we're kind of over the like, you know, kind of realization that there things aren't going back for at least, you know, some time, um, then that kind of, you know, will spark hopefully creativity and newness and innovation and ideas and, you know, adaptability. Um, and that's kind of, you know, what you did, you know, you had yeah, something. I, mean, I, truly feel, I truly feel that it will. And it's been amazing to see. It's been amazing to see all of my fellow small businesses really, you know, tackle this time and, yeah. and try to figure out like how to, you know, continue to get the word out, um, even without being able to do uh, the live in-person um, events. But at the same time, I think everyone should also feel okay about turning inwards and taking yeah. care of themselves and, um, you know, not having to grow the business, but just right. survive and, right. you know, give yeah. the attention that like you need, that your family needs, um, that, you know, enough attention for your business to, to get through this. Um, but to, to also not feel compelled or forced to like have to figure things out right now. Yeah. I think that's a really good place to end. Um, Sylvie, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for all of your insight and empathy. And um, I hope that, you know, everyone listening is enjoying and I hope you're all safe and sound um, and, you know, continue to DM me. I'm happy to answer questions. I've gotten a bunch. I don't have many answers, but at least I can be a helpful ear, hopefully, for a lot of you. And to those of you who I owe an email to, I know, and it will come. I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, Sylvie, thank you so much for coming. Amanda, thank thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Engineer today without Matt. Um, But uh, I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.